His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're looking at verses 15 through 18 in the moment, dealing with some beautiful truths that are expressed in, uh, in just a very uh, subtle sublime kind of way, uh, in ways that I think are often overlooked by commentators and folks when they are working their way through the text. And so we were here last week. I want to emphasize one thing in in repetition from what we looked at a week ago, and then we'll move on to uh, verses 18. And then really, did I tell you already that Hebrews 10 is my favorite chapter in this book? All right. So out of the 66 books of the Bible, Hebrews is my favorite. Out of the 13 chapters of Hebrews, chapter 10 is my favorite. And then out of all the verses of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 are my favorite verses in my favorite chapter, in my favorite book, in my favorite Bible, (laughs) all right? (laughs) So we're on the verge of getting there, and uh, it's going to be a blessing. You see, those guys stand daily ministering. Backing up to verse 11, every priest, that's every Levitical priest in the earthly shadow temple, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This is the the contrast. Those guys, again and again and again, over and over and over again. Jesus, one time. One time forever, and then he sits down. Those guys never got to sit down. They were constantly standing before the Lord and ministering. But Jesus, one time, then sat down. The present session of Jesus Christ as head of the church is, is, is amazing, and it helps to, uh, for us to apply our Melchizedek priesthood in the church age, and we'll be talking about that some more as well. All right, waiting from that time on, at verse 13, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is waiting. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's waiting waiting to come, waiting to receive us, waiting. We're waiting. The church age is an age of waiting. Day by day, moment by moment, we're waiting, waiting for that trumpet to sound, waiting to go home. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And here we have it. Now, this is the beauty of the book. Because when he says those who are sanctified, he can actually speak of different audiences in different ways because we're all sanctified but we're, we're sanctified at different times in different ways and the blood of jesus christ makes it all possible so you and i are eternally sanctified in the body of christ you and i are eternally sanctified as melchizedek priests uh, under jesus christ the apostle and high priest of our confession israel as a nation is waiting for a different sanctification still provided for by the blood of christ but waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ, whereby the blood of the covenant can be applied to their nation. And so it's very important for us. We are those that have to rightly divide the word of truth. 
We have to understand that there's personal sanctification that you and I have personally when we get ushered into the body of Christ and we get saved. But Israel has a national sanctification, one that they will receive when the blood of Christ is applied to their account at the second advent. So we'll talk about those things as well. And this is really what sets it apart. I'm going to open in prayer here in a moment. But when you look at verse 15, I think this gets overlooked. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. You realize how profound that is? Also testifies to us. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. And what this text is telling us is how to handle the Scripture as a church-age believer priest. Because Jeremiah 31 wasn't written to us. Jeremiah 31 was written to Israel. But the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. So this allows us to rightly divide the word of truth. And so we need to study the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and as it relates to Israel. That's a study all by itself. Then we get to come back and have a second study. And when we come back and have a second study, this is the also study. This is the also study whereby the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. And we have a Greek canon of Scripture as well as the Hebrew canon of Scripture. We have a New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And we have the blessings of what we have in the church age to understand not only the covenant from the perspective of of a people that the covenant is made with, but we have a perspective coming from Jesus, from the mediator of that new covenant, and our role in Christ, our role in serving that covenant that Jesus mediates. And so the also of verse 15 becomes significant. And that's what we talked about a week ago. I wanted to re-highlight it again this morning, show a couple slides I didn't show last week, and then we can move on and gain new ground. Before we do any of that, though, we've got to open with a word of prayer to sanctify our time, to ask for the Father's blessing, to uh, prepare our hearts for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the Word of God, thankful for God the Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us, empowering our spiritual gifts, opening our eyes to spiritual truth. Thank you for the blessing that comes to be able to look back to the completed work of Jesus Christ and to look forward. We look forward to his coming work any day now, Father, any moment of any day. You can give the word and your son will come forth and call us home. We ask that it might be today. In the meantime, Father, keep us humble. Keep working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Open our eyes to your truth, Father. We thank and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have um, the Holy Spirit also testifying to us in the points of study here from verses 15 through 17. And your miraculous prayers were answered because the projector that didn't work last hour decided to work this hour. I decided our projector is a teenager that works when it feels like it. All right. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. And really, there's an us versus them contrast here which is laying out the differences, those guys and us. Those guys did what they did, but we do what we do. 
Those guys did what they did, but Jesus did what he did, and we are in Christ. And so testifying to us, beyond Old Testament revelation concerning Israel comes the New Testament revelation concerning the church. That wasn't given in the Old Testament. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches us about the church and the us versus them distinction between Israel and the church. Very important. The new covenant will not be made until after those days. If someone's going to sit down and show to me, prove to me that we're in the new covenant today, then they're welcome to try, but they need to prove to me that the tribulation has already come and gone and that Jesus has returned to conquer Antichrist. Because until the day of the Lord is fulfilled, the new covenant can't be made. It says, after those days, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, you know, I'll look at it with an open mind. I'm willing to be convinced, but you've got to convince me from the scriptures that after those days means we've already passed the great tribulation of Israel because the new covenant will not be made until after those days. Also, the heart-written law. It's crazy to me how many people think that the heart-written law is already here. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I will write my law upon their heart. Let's just, well, we can look at it here. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And, and so folks think, well, we have that today, don't we? No, we do not. And if you want to convince me of that, good luck to you. Show me the verses to convince me of that because I think the burden of proof is on you and the weight of these scriptures is on my side to show me this, okay? And when you look back to Jeremiah 31, you see how what a blessing this is for the Jewish people and why it is that Gentiles are going to be grabbing Jews. Ten Gentiles will grab the hem of a Jew and say, teach us, right? We want to go with you. The Lord is with you that there is going to be such a distinction between Jew and Gentile in the millennium that we can't lose sight of that. Do you lose sight of that? Do you overlook that? I think the fact is we, we get spoiled by our church age. We get spoiled by the fact that in Christ there is no Jew, no Gentile. We function in the church age where it doesn't matter if you're you know, American or Indian or Russian or French or white or black or whatever. None of that makes a difference. We're all one body in Christ in the church age. And so we get accustomed to that and it escapes our notice that it wasn't always this way. That before the day of Pentecost of 33 AD, before the church began, there was quite clearly a distinction to be found between Jews and Gentiles. And that distinction returns after the rapture of the church. When we get caught up to be with the Lord in heaven and and the unbelievers are left on this planet, once again, it's a Jew versus Gentile contrast. And it's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be the first to get saved, will be the first to have ministry during the tribulation of Israel. Say, it's a very much a Jewish uh, thing when the Gentiles are gathered against Jerusalem in the great tribulation. The millennium, same thing. Jew versus Gentile. Gentile kings are going to have to come and pay homage to Jesus Christ every year. And if a Gentile king doesn't come and do that, he gets his reign turned off. The whole country suffers a drought because that Gentile king failed to go to Jerusalem and worship Jesus Christ at the Feast of Trumpets, say, Feast of Tabernacles. Go look at that in Zechariah chapter 14. You'll see what I'm talking about. The Jew-Gentile distinction returns for the tribulation and for the millennium. And so when we read 
uh, for example, that ten Jews or ten Gentiles grab the garments of a Jew, that's because they don't have the law of God written on their heart the way the, the, the Jews do. That's a unique blessing for the Jewish people. And so when it says, um, I will uh, uh, make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them on their hearts, I will write it, I will be their God, they will be my people. It goes on to say, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. That is not the case today. If that was the case today, none of you would be here. Why would you come and learn? Why would I have to teach anybody? I'd be out of work. Because we would all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. That's going to be Israel's blessing in the millennial kingdom. That's not the church reality today. In fact, we're supposed to speak to one another, teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16 proves that we can't be in the new covenant because we have a need to teach one another. And in the new covenant, Israel will not have a need to teach one another. All right. For the people, and this is what I failed to give last week. In fact, the idea just struck me as I was driving home. So I made a new slide and the note that colored yellow that says note, this is new. The dispensation of the church has an entirely different heart writing. And I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 3 because there are people that will look at 2 Corinthians 3 and say, see, there it is right there. New covenant, the law is written on our hearts. Really? That's not what I'm reading. But okay, let's look. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writing to the Corinthians, a very hostile church, three-fourths of which don't like him anymore. Okay? Only one-fourth of the Corinthians even like Paul. The three-fourths are schismatic and they want Peter or they want Cephas or they want uh, Apollos. All right. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need a sum letters of commendation to you or from you? Do I need to have, are my credentials not good enough? Do I need to have a, a letter of commendation? See, and of course not. He says, you are my letter of commendation. You know, I noticed when I came in this morning, I didn't need to bring my ordination certificate and show anybody before you let me get in the pulpit and start teaching Bible class. No one investigated my credentials to say, are you sure you're my pastor? Are you sure you're the pastor of this church? And Paul is saying the same thing here. I don't need a letter of reference. You know, I've got you guys. He says, you are our letter written in our hearts. Now, if I stop right there, say heart writing, hmm, heart writing, heart writing. And, and it goes on to say, um, a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All right. So it's heart writing, and it's not on stone tablets. It's on human hearts. Well, by golly, that must be the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. Just stop right there, okay? You're actually undertaking a, a, a category error, and you're, it's a logical fallacy, you know, to say, okay, it's similar, I'll grant you. It is heart writing. 
The new covenant will feature heart writing. It is not on stone tablets. The new covenant will not be put on stone tablets. I will grant you there are similarities. But similarity is not identity. Similarity actually helps by way of analogy to show us what's happening here. So for example, is there anything in here about the law? The law of God being written on anybody's heart. He says it's the Corinthians being written on his heart. You, all y'all, you Corinthian believers, the members of Corinth Bible Church, you are our letter written in our hearts. Paul and his co-author, his team, known and read by all men. Known and read by all men. Now that statement's not made about Israel and the new covenant. Being manifested, you are a letter of Christ. Jesus, the head of the church, is doing this writing. Cared for by us. And that right there, diakoneo, the verb to, to serve, to minister to, to care for one another. We're all here to serve one another. We're all here to deacon one another in the diakoneo applications. And as we serve, this is what God, Jesus does as head of the church, as, as you serve a brother in Christ, as you serve a sister in Christ, when you're serving them in Christian love, Jesus Christ writes that person's name on your heart. You walk away from that encounter, you've been edified because you were edifying them. You have been, they're now a part of you because you ministered to them. And wherever you go, I mean, think about the years you've been saved. Think about the ministry you've had. Think about those that you've served. They're still with you. Because those that you've served in the past, Jesus wrote those names on your heart. Jesus Christ writes the commendation letters on our hearts as we serve the living God and serving others. And that has literally nothing whatsoever to do with the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. The only vague similarities are the analogy of being heart written as opposed to tablet written. That's the only similarity between our heart writing of 2 Corinthians 3 and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. People get confused though because a couple of verses later, in fact, three verses later, when you get down to verse 6, Paul does mention the new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we've taught this before as well in the 2 Corinthians series. Let me just give it to you here quickly. So such confidence we have through Christ towards God. This is a present confidence we have today. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So take that verse and apply that verse. Live that verse. Embrace that verse. Thank God for that verse. Your adequacy as a pastor, your adequacy as a deacon, your adequacy as a Sunday school teacher, your adequacy as a husband, your adequacy as a parent. Whatever adequacy you, you want or think you need or do, do need, you do have, God provides every adequacy in the present church age. Our adequacy is from God for us to fulfill our entire work assignment in the church age. We are prepared for good works. We, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and we are adequate for every one of those good works. 
because he makes us adequate for every good work. Now, <laughs> if, you, if you make a blanket statement and you include everything in that blanket statement, how do you add to that? You then have to go beyond the present to talk about something that's coming in the future. And that's what happens with verse 6. So our adequacy is from God. We have a present adequacy here and now, but there is a future adequacy on the way who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so our new covenant adequacy is also. It's above and beyond. Our new covenant adequacy in verse 6 is icing on the cake. It's above and beyond our church age adequacy in verse 5. Notice? Because the church age ministry is what's preparing us for what we're going to do when we get to the kingdom. Our, Our growth now is preparing us for our work assignment in the millennial kingdom. All right. In any event, you will read, possibly, the more commentaries you read, Uh, Far too many tell you that on the basis of this chapter, this is conclusive proof that the church is in the new covenant right now. And it's sad because it references heart writing and it says that we are also adequate as servants, as deacons, not recipients, deacons of the new covenant. Jesus being the mediator and we being in Christ, we deacon the new covenant that he mediates. We don't receive it. We're not party to it. We have our sins forgiven in Christ, but they have sins and lawless deeds forgiven in the new covenant. Recognize that? We have sins forgiven in Christ, but they have two things. Their sins I will remember no more and their lawless deeds I will forgive. So again, you want to tell me this applies to us? All right. I'm on board with the uh, sins being forgiven, but tell me about your lawless deeds now. When were you ever under the law to begin with? You can't have any lawless deeds. You were never under the law. I was never under the law. The church was never under the law. We have no lawless deeds that need to be forgiven. The sins being forgiven in the new covenant are the national sins of Israel anyway, and the lawless deeds are provided for by the mediator of the new covenant and we have separate issues there. Israel, the nation. Christ mediates the new covenant. The church ministers the new covenant. Christ mediates it. We minister it. We do not receive it. I hope this is making sense. It's like the, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's not us. We're not invited to the wedding supper. We are the bride We are issuing the invitations. Oh, never thought of that before. Well, it makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, I don't want to be an invited guest. I'm going to be a participant as the bride of Christ. Much better than being an invited guest. All right. On to verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
we have a statement that's made. In fact, it's a blanket statement. It's made a number of times. Uh, the statement is made, and I think it gets glossed over, and it's actually pretty profound if you stop to think about it. Where there is forgiveness, there's no longer any offering for sin. And it's kind of a way to restate in, uh, in different, different terms why it is that they had to do this over and over and over again. They had a day of atonement. You think, hey, things are great. Until next year, they've got another day of atonement, and here we go again. And then the next year, there's another day of atonement, and here we go again. And so we have a constant reminder of sins. And so, so long as there remains an offering for sin, then we know that sin hasn't been dealt with. And that's a problem. It's a problem for Israel. It's a problem for the Jewish nation. As a nation, they have to come to the point where there no longer is an offering for sin because they have to, as a nation, accept the once and for all sacrifice that was made on their behalf. But this warning comes in a couple of different contexts, and it comes in, I think, a positional experience and in an experiential way. And that's uh, something we want to highlight here because it's a warning in some passages. It's a terrible warning. Uh, In Numbers 15, it's a terrible warning that there's no longer an offering for sin. That's a terrifying thing for Israel in the Old Testament. If there is no sacrifice for this sin, then you're, you're stuck out. There's, there's no options. Numbers 15, and, and we, we talked about this in the, really in the Hebrews 6 warning passage. So if you were here for that, you've, you've had this already. Um, if you weren't here for that, then maybe you've never seen this before. Or maybe you were here and you were daydreaming and you weren't paying attention. But understand, the Levitical sacrifices were never for willful defiant sin. The Levitical sacrifices, there was no Levitical help for you in those, in those circumstances. The willful defiant sin, you could bring a sin offering, you could bring a trespass offering, you could bring a, a peace offering, a guilt offering, and as an individual believer, those were designed not for willful, defiant, rebellious sin. And you read about this in Numbers 15, verses 22 through 31. There is no sacrifice for these guys. These other laws are for the unwitting. When you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord your God has spoken to Moses, even all the Lord has commanded to you through Moses. Verse 24 says, It shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord. See, if it's unwitting, down to verse 27, and see, verse 26, it happened through error. Verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. That's unintentionally. Again, verse 29, unintentionally. Verse 28, unintentionally. Look at all these unintentionally. There's no sacrifice for that. I mean, that's, that's what the sacrifice was designed for. You get to the willful defiant sin in verse 30. The person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. He has despised the word of the Lord. He has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. There is no sacrifice for those sins. The willful defiant sin. Forget the goat, forget the sheep, forget the... When David committed his adultery and his murder, there was nothing Levitical that could help David. There was no Levitical offering 
He was worthy of death two times over as an adulterer and as a murderer. And so in the Old Testament, without the capacity to bring a, a guilt offering, without the capacity to bring a sin offering, you're kind of stuck. You say, well, I want to take part in Passover. I want to take part in Pentecost. I want to, Nope, you're unclean. Until <laughs> Day of Atonement. Then you get a national reset. You get a national, it's like a Windows machine. Just reboot the whole thing. All right. And on the Day of Atonement, the whole Jewish nation got a, got a reset. And a whole other year now, they can be ceremonially clean. They can participate in the rituals and the observances and all the rest. Well, in the church age, of course, what do we have? <laughs> We don't have an annual reset, do-over. There's no longer an offering for sin. This also is phrased as a warning in Hebrews 10.26. It's phrased as a warning earlier in Hebrews 6. There no longer remains an offering for sin. There's a scary passage here in verse 26 of this very chapter that says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And that is so true. We don't have an annual reset button, a do-over in the church age. We have the once and for all finished work of Jesus Christ. And if we live in defiance of that, woe be unto us. God's judgment will hit us in His divine discipline. We want to understand that. It's also a very beautiful thing. You know, a day is coming when Israel will, will embrace this as a truth. No longer an offering for sin. This is actually a beautiful thing in the millennium for Israel and the new covenant. It means that as a nation, they will identify the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It means as a nation, they don't have to take blood into a holy of holies and apply it to a mercy seat because there won't be a mercy seat in the holy of holies in the millennial kingdom. In fact, there won't be a veil in the Holy of Holies in the millennium. Have you read Ezekiel lately? I don't blame you. Who does? Read Ezekiel every so often. Read chapters 40 through 48. You get nine chapters of millennial Leviticus. Okay? You get the time of reformation that was promised. You get what the Levitical priesthood will be like in the millennium. And it specifically spotlights the, uh, the lineage of Zadok. Zadok, the faithful Levitical priest, is, is magnified in the Levitical priesthood of the millennium. And they will have animal sacrifice again. They will have an altar again. They will have a labor again. They will have a holy place and a most holy place. But by the time you get to the most holy place, by the way, there's doors instead of a veil and the doors are open. All right? And you go in there and there's not a mercy seat to smear blood. There's Jesus Christ seated on His throne. What a glory. And then there's even a building beyond the most holy place. There is a separate area to the west, a building without doors or windows. It's a fun book, all right? Anyway, no longer an offering for sin. Israel will celebrate this. They will say, amen, hallelujah. There is no longer an offering for sin because Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, has cleansed our nation. We are eternally cleansed. It will be a beautiful thing for Israel in the new covenant. And so we have 
the blessing there. All right, now to verse 19 through 25. My favorite verses in my favorite chapter in my favorite book of the Bible. 19 through, I'll handle 19 through 22 on an outline, and then we'll look at 23 through 25 separately. Um, but therefore, brethren, now the view comes exclusively to us. We've been, look, we've been having some us versus them contrast. We've been talking about them a little bit, but now it's entirely back to us. It's back to holy brethren. It's back to the body of Christ in the church age. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. All right, we're going to go step by step through this because there's so much to tear apart in here, so much content. But recognize that this is new. It says it's new. It's living. Everything in the Old Testament was dying. <laughs> Every sacrifice in the Old Testament died. That's made it a sacrifice. We have living sacrifices in the church age. A new and living way which he inaugurated for us. I love inaugurations, right? Inaugurations. Inauguration, like a presidential inauguration or... I don't know, whatever other kind of inaugurations there are. Holy place, veil inaugurations. And guess what? When it's done, it's done. He's inaugurated. He's the president. He's in office. Jesus has inaugurated the opening of the Holy of Holies. Not the earthly replica, the heavenly reality. And he opened that veil. He inaugurated that veil. And it's open for business all day, every day. It's open for business right now. We're there right now. Understand the, uh, in the Old Testament, they were only open for business one day a year. And only one guy went in there all by himself with a dead sacrifice, with blood not his own. Jesus went in with blood his own. We're going to commemorate that today in the communion. The wine speaks to the blood of Christ. It speaks to his work. And it was not a substitute. It was himself. The, old, the high priest would go in with blood, not his own. Jesus went in with his own blood. And they went in, they functioned, and they came back. Jesus went in, and this is, door is now open all day, every day. He went in, he passed through the heavens. He sat down at the right hand of God. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier that an Old Testament believer might have to wait. You know, at what point is he so ceremonially unclean that his only hope now is Day of Atonement? Hopefully it's late summer, early fall, because Day of Atonement comes around in the fall. Hopefully it's not, you know, the dead of winter or early January where he has to wait most of the rest of that following year until he can be ceremonially clean and back on board with the uh, the covenant nation that he's worshiping with. Talk about waiting, waiting, waiting. Now, when you and I have a need, how long does it take us to get to the throne of grace? Split second, right? As fast as you can drop to your spiritual knees, okay? Which is faster than you can drop to your physical needs, uh, knees, okay? We can go to the Father in prayer today, right here, right now. We should be there right now. We are there right now. 
Our bodies are seated on Cross Park Drive, but our spirits, we are in the Holy of Holies with Christ, standing before our Father. There's so much truth in this. All right, and we have confidence. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. So we have His blood, we have His flesh. What a great message for Communion Sunday, huh? And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. That was something that the Levitical offerings could never cleanse. The laver could wash your hands and feet. The Levitical bath was a body bath, but not a heart bath. We have heart cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. Sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That happened too. That's a reality for the body of Christ. All right, so let us do this. Let all of us do this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. When we take part of community today, it's not because we're faithful, it's because he's faithful. We examine ourselves. If we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But we examine ourselves and we partake of communion because he is faithful. We partake in a worthy manner because it's his worthiness, not ours, that we commemorate at the communion table. The priestly function of the church is based on what Jesus Christ did and what Jesus Christ continues to do. The priestly function of the church, when I use the capital C church, I'm talking about the church universal, the body of Christ, every born-again believer from Pentecost to rapture. The priestly function of the church is based on what Jesus Christ did and what Jesus Christ continues to do. Hebrews is the book of our priestly function. I like to use these expressions to me they communicate that every church-age believer has a priestly function. We have a, an ambassadorial function. We have a soldier function. And we try to teach all three functions in different classes at different times so that we understand uh, that whatever your gift is, whatever your ministry is, whatever your individual callings might be, all of us corporately, collectively, we have these three functions, priestly function, soldier function, ambassadorial function. And we, we ought to f- operate in those ways. Right? So we ought to be functioning as a soldier in the angelic conflict with our armor on, engaged with the, the, uh, the false doctrine that, that uh, we have to deal with in our generation, the principalities and powers, the rulers and the authorities. None of us have an exemption from that. None of us are excused. We're all participants. Same thing with our ambassadorial functions. Don't just say, well, Doug's an evangelist, Fallon's an evangelist. They'll, they'll lead people to Christ. I don't have to talk to them. You know, just turn Fallon loose and 500 people will get saved next week anyway. You have your ambassadorial function, and this is your door that's open before you. We are ministers of reconciliation, and that's every believer of the church age. Soldier function, ambassadorial function. What Hebrews highlights, of course, is our priestly function. Every one of us is a believer priest. Don't fall for the Roman lie that there's clergy, that there's laity, that, oh, well, the pastor, he's the one. He is the minister, after all. I know he's the minister because he... He wears a suit and tie on Sunday and he stands in the pulpit. We're all ministers. We all have priestly function and we all enter within the veil. 
In fact, a mono-gifted assembly is a very sick assembly. We all have gifts and ministries and effects. We all should be engaged in our priesthood. The whole point to this is that Jesus entered within the veil and he entered as a forerunner. We all follow. He inaugurated it. Why did he open it up? So that we all can follow. Old Testament, that wasn't the case. Aaron went in all by himself. And then when he died, Eliezer went in all by himself. And then when he died, Phineas went in all by himself. And then when he died, I don't know who followed. There's a Read Chronicles sometime. You'll get a list of priests there from Aaron to Eliezer to Phineas to whoever. Okay? And in their generation, when they were the high priest, they went in all by themselves one day a year. And when they were done, they came back out. That's not our priesthood. That's not our priesthood at all. Jesus entered into, not the replica, he entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven and he entered as a forerunner. And we all have confidence to enter. Again, verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place. All of us. And this is this, uh, you know, a whole lot bigger than a 20 foot by 20 foot, you know, 10 by 10 cubit, whatever, 30 by 30. We have uh, the whole body of Christ is in there. Wow. That's impressive. What he did by the blood of Jesus. That's what he did. He did that once and for all. Three hours of darkness on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. From high noon when it went dark to three o'clock in the afternoon when the lights came back on. And he did that work. That's what he did. What does he continue to do? Notice now, yeah, through a new and living way, a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And what does he continue to do? He continues to serve in verse 21 as a great priest over the house of God. I wanted to put 21 on that slide, not 20. What he did and what he continues to do. He continues to serve. We have presently since we have. There's two since we haves here. That's the point I'm making. Since we have, in verse 19, based upon what he did, and then the other since we have, in verse 21, is based upon what he's presently doing. He's presently the apostle and high priest of our confession. We presently have a great priest over the house of God. We presently have that. That's a reality in the church age, what he's currently doing. And I think that Christians in churches all over the world, they give it lip service, but they ignore it practically. They say, oh yeah, Christ is head of the church, I get that. But they leave it as a title and they make it an empty, meaningless title because they have no appreciation, no sense of awareness for what Jesus is actively doing right here, right now as head of the church. He is very hands-on. He is very involved. He walks in the midst of this lampstand. He holds this star in his right hand. Jesus Christ as head of the church, the apostle and high priest of our confession, is a presently serving high priest. 
presently leading this present priesthood. Don't get the idea that, well, he's sitting at the Father's right hand with his feet propped up doing nothing. All right? Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe we've had bosses in the past. We've had supervisors in the past. And they've had very impressive titles. They even had a nameplate on their door with their title. They had a desk thing with their title. And they held that title and they wielded that title over you but you weren't entirely sure that that title meant anything or what the title was even all about because near as you could tell, this person held a title, but you couldn't tell anything that that person actually did. It's like an absentee title holder that has the title but never does anything for it. That's not what Jesus Christ as head of the church is all about. It's not an empty title. It is a meaningful, significantly meaningful title. So since we have and since we have, you can spot that in English. You don't need the Greek for that. Since we have in verse 19 and since we have in verse 21, there's two bases for how we should be functioning. Let us enter and let us draw near. All right, since we have, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What Jesus did, what Jesus continues to do. Now, the priestly function of the church presents each member as a living sacrifice. Again, I use a capital M for member as a member of the universal body of Christ, not as a member of a particular local church. Some people are members of this local church. Some people are members of different local churches. Some people aren't members of any local church. They've got a a personal conviction that's uh, hostile to the concept of church membership. So I use a capital M because we're all members of the body of Christ, individually members one of another. Each church member is a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. So we don't go into the holy place with a goat. I wouldn't even know where to get a goat. And I wouldn't know how to take that goat to heaven. Even if I knew where to buy a goat. Somebody tell No, don't tell me. I don't even want to know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remain goat ignorant as long as I can. I don't have to take a goat into the holy of holies because I present myself a living and holy sacrifice. When Isaiah was in heaven in a vision, he said, here I am, send me. We go to heaven spiritually in our priesthood and we say, here I am, here's my service. The living and holy sacrifice, my spiritual service of worship, Romans 12.1. And that's all of us in the body of Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ inaugurated a new and living way into the heavenly holy place. Only church-age believers born again into a living hope are living stones in this embodied temple. Only church-age believers born again into a living hope are living stones in this embodied temple. Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. This will lead us into our communion time. 1 Peter chapter 1. So 
Some people get confused and they try to apply this to the nation of Israel. Again, there are similarities. By analogy, we can see the similarities and we can draw the applications, but it's only by analogy. And the similarity is not identity. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Old Testament believers got saved. Old Testament believers were born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. But Jesus did not tell Nicodemus that he would be born again to a living hope. No Old Testament believer was born again to a living hope. They were born again. They were regenerate. Their human spirit was made alive. But they were not baptized into the living Savior, as you and I are baptized into the one who died and rose again on our behalf. So pick your favorite Old Testament believer, Daniel, David, Moses, whoever. You got, you got a favorite Old Testament saint? They were born again. Their human spirit was made alive. That's what happens when you're born again. Their human spirit was made alive. So they were living body, soul, and human spirit but they were not baptized into Christ Jesus. They were not born again to a living hope. That's a church age positional truth. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Until Jesus died and rose again, this estate was not possible for an Old Testament believer. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's church age positional truth, inheritance. Daniel will have an earthly inheritance. David will have an earthly inheritance. Old Testament saints have earthly inheritance they are looking forward to in their resurrection. Ours is a heavenly inheritance. All right, and so we see it here. Verse 23 of the same chapter. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Born again. Like I say, Old Testament, New Testament, we're all born again when we're saved. But it's only New Testament believers in the church that are born again to a living hope. First Peter chapter 2 then. Verse 4 says, Coming to him as to a living stone. And this becomes important. It, can't, it was not applicable in the Old Testament, only applicable in the church age because he was the stone which the builders rejected. He became the chief cornerstone. He was rejected. He died. He rose again. He is now the living stone. And we also are living stones. Coming to him is to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. That's all of us. Is there anybody excluded from that? (laughs) Do you need a second blessing, a subsequent later baptism of the Holy Spirit to kind of make you an extra special? No. If you're saved, if you got saved this morning, if you got saved two minutes ago, you are now a living stone choice and precious in the sight of God, being built up into a temple, into a house, into a priesthood. 
being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We can function in our Melchizedek priesthood because we are living stones bringing living sacrifices. And only church-age believers can do this. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right. This is our provision here. Next week, we're going to talk more about the veil, the veil that is his flesh. But I want to talk about flesh and blood. I want to talk about communion. We're going to go to the communion table. And uh, we're doing something new today. Talked about it a year ago. Talked about it six months ago. Mentioned it one month ago when I said, we're going to do it. We're, uh, for the first time ever in the history of Austin Bible Church, we're actually going to serve wine rather uh, in addition to the grape juice. For 51 years now, we were founded in 1968, uh, originally as Trinity Bible Church, renamed Austin Bible Church in 1974. Uh, but in 51 years as a church, we have served grape juice at every communion service. And uh, I mentioned a year ago, actually I mentioned two years ago in one of the Bible classes, but then a year ago I started talking to people. Have you ever attended a church that served wine instead of, instead of grape juice? And what was that like? What was your experience with that? Started to take an informal survey, then more of a formal survey by email with some folks. Then I uh, mentioned it last month because we have communion usually on the second Sunday of the month. And, and, uh, and so here we are again today to do this. And, uh, and so I said, you know what, next month we're going to do real wine. And uh, if, uh, unless we worship at the idol of we've never done that before, then uh, we aren't going to be afraid of, uh, of, of doing something we've never done before. But here's the thing. And, and did you read the newsletter? We published a newsletter and that went out by email a couple weeks ago or last week sometime. And so we have this as a picture. And I want you to, to, to let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm still recording, aren't I? This is, okay, let's keep it going. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. At the end of the chapter, we recognize our uh, status as a new creation in Christ. And um, we're ambassadors for Christ. God was in Christ, we're told in verse 19. This is what the Father was doing in Christ in His incarnation reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, committing to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we have the reminders here that as a new creation, as a new uh, testimony, we have this privilege to be able to identify what God did and what God continues to do and what Jesus will do when he returns. But now notice, the, to me, the, the most significant impact comes here in verse 21. He, that's the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ. Remember, he was sinless. So the bread is without leaven. The bread is without leaven because in his humanity, Jesus was without sin. He who knew no sin. But notice what happened. He made him to be sin on our behalf. He was made sin. 
on our behalf. Our sins were laid on Him. They were imputed to His account. He didn't do any of them. But every sin I ever did or ever will do was laid on Him. And so He was made to be sin. All right? Doug, you can open the door there if you want and let them in. The children are joining us here for communion. Oh, here they come. All right. So He was made to be sin. Now the question then arises, so if He was made to be sin, we understand, of course, the bread was unleavened. And that was Passover. This was given on Passover anyway. Jesus was eating Passover with His disciples. And eating Passover with His disciples, it's unleavened bread at the Passover. They have to clear their house of all leaven in the days leading up to Passover. So it's unleavened bread, and we we understand that because our Savior in His humanity was without sin. But then He was made to be sin. He became sin. Our sins were imputed to Him as He did the work on the cross. The sun was darkened, and for three hours He cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? That forsaking, that darkness, that turning of the back from the Father to the Son, that's what we deal with in our communion service. And in that picture, to have the wine unfermented is actually inaccurate. It is less than ideal because he who knew no sin was made to be sin. The picture of his work ought to be the picture of fermentation. It ought to be the picture of... of, uh, of, So we had to have both, both pictures, the unleavened and the fermented, so that we can portray he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. And in fact, it becomes then a toast as we partake a toast of the coming kingdom when Jesus drinks the new wine with us. All right, I'm going to close our teaching service with prayer and then we'll sing a hymn and then we will have our communion time. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the uh, teaching from Hebrews. I thank you for the Melchizedek priesthood we have in Christ, the instantaneous access we have before your throne. All day, every day, we can stand before you as living and holy sacrifices, making our requests known. And Father, we thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for... Uh, his work, his character and his work, the work that he did on our behalf. I thank you, Father, that he became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. If he did not become, we cannot become. But he became, and now we have become, the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you for these powerful truths. Thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.